the Virgin Radio Pridecast, proudly supported by Disney Plus, full of stories and love for all. Jake Graff, thanks for joining us and thanks for fitting us in because I know you're really busy at the moment and you're about to become a dad again. I'm indeed. We are uh, expecting baby number two any minute, which is very exciting and uh, counting the hours and getting more and more nervous slash excited slash terrified. Is everything is everything all set? Have you prepared everything? No, God, no. I mean, we are. Um, we haven't packed. We haven't got a list. Hannah, my wife, likes to write lists. It's her military background. Lists and lists and lists. So we've got lots of lists, but nothing is packed. Nothing is ready. And uh, no. Is anything different second time around when you're getting ready for a new arrival second time around? Well, bear in mind that number one, Millie was born um, a month into lockdown. And so number one was filled with utter terror because the world was crumbling around us and everyone was very ill. And uh, we had to go off five weeks early because obviously there was the travel ban put into place. So we just had to throw everything in a car pretty much overnight when uh, the announcement was made and drive through the night to Belfast. So hopefully that won't happen this time. <laughs> so it's nothing to do with birth order. It's actually to do with COVID that you're having completely different experiences. Exactly. Last time was... was I mean, last time was terrifying. We were all there. We all know. And then add to that having a, your first baby. Yes, it was pretty, pretty dicey. And how about your first baby, Millie? Now she's no longer a baby. How does she feel about becoming a big sister? We have pumped her with the books, with the T-shirts, with the baby dolls, with the everything else. I does she get it? I don't know. She she knows what system means. I think sort of. She knows a baby's coming, and we're gonna do what all my friends have done, which is when the baby arrives, give Millie a present, say this is from yeah, the baby, yeah. and uh, she'll. That's gonna be her first uh, experience of her little sister buying her a present. And then we're going to hope she's as gentle and possibly less droppy with her little sister as she is with her plastic dolls. Oh, so you're saying sister, so you know. Oh, yes, we know. Ah, we know. We, we, didn't, we didn't want a surprise. It's not, you understand, because we're painting anything pink or buying pink clothes. It is just to know because, you know, we wanted to know. And uh, because of IVF and so on, you're given a lot more information as things go along. So, yeah, we know we're having another little girl. Fantastic. And you mentioned um, prepping Millie by reading all the books. The first time you became a parent, did you go through these parenting manuals? Did you read them and did you look back over the way you were brought up and think about it and think about what you wanted to do differently? We bought them all. I think we read possibly one chapter in maybe two or three. So they're still sitting on a shelf. I think really it was all about, you know, we were very lucky. My sister has three and she gave us lots of information. Her Millie's godmother has three and gave us lots of information. Millie's other godmother is a Great Ormond Street Hospital paediatric nurse. So we got all of that information. But we did have lots of conversations about how we were going to raise her, how we were going to make her feel, how we were going to make her feel that just because she's a little girl or, you know, as far as we know, she's a little girl unless she tells us otherwise. Um, we are going to not, you know, show her there's no limitations according to gender or according to anything, that she can be whoever she wants, that she can love whoever she wants, that she can play with whatever she wants. Well, it's interesting talking about this because I would imagine for a transparent um, gendered behaviour and, you know, things like just finding out which sex they're going to be assigned is potentially triggering. I mean, not really, no. <laughs> I'd like to say there are lots of things that are triggering. That's not one of them. I mean, I really struggled putting her in dresses and skirts because I hated them so much when I was a kid. Um, so she wears lo loads and loads of pink. Um, but it's just, a, she's a very happy 
little person and she likes to climb things and she likes to play in mud and she likes to eat mud and she likes to suck pebbles in the garden and play in sand and she is utterly fearless and whether that's girl behavior or boy behavior or just Millie behavior we're certainly not pushing her into either way and if at some point she says I'd like to wear a nice pretty dress I will reluctantly break them out but you know for the moment she's she's just a colorful little kid wearing what she likes to wear and what's interesting is when she wears pink and we a photo on social media we get the trans community occasionally jumping in and saying we shouldn't be gendering our child and they haven't told us what their gender is and we shouldn't be doing this and when we put her all in blue and she's she's there's a photo of her then we get other people saying that we're trying to trans our baby so you really can't win and it's we've really we've, complicated all it, that, isn't it? <laughs> it really is so we just decided to rise above it and she wears lots of every colour and she's a happy baby. So I know lots of parents actually who think a lot about traditional gendered behaviour and and you and I'm sure you've heard comments from outside your circle about how she's girly or a tomboy or all these things you hear. Well I mean you know for all kinds of parents who struggle with these subjects what's your policy? I think you know again for for it's difficult because we see certain other kids that we know who I think, you know, for, for whatever you're doing at home, when your child goes out into the world, they will be gendered, whether, they, whether that's a nursery or a school or with other kids or on play dates, that is going to obviously infiltrate, even if you raise them completely gender-free. And from my point of view, you know, Millie's got all of the little buses and trucks and teddy bears and dolls and prams and building blocks and books and she loves them all. She loves to she loves to build, absolutely loves to build with those little magnetic clippy things that sort of clip together and she loves to build castles and knock it all down. And then she loves to wrap her little you know baby in in a blanket and walk around, you know, pretending to be mummy and so for us it's we are really just trying to raise a happy child, you know. So and that's what I'd say across the board, you know, just make sure your kids happy. They will have that that you know that gender put upon them by the rest of the world. So, you know, if you're happy to at home, just let them be them and they will tell you who they are. And is there any one thing from your um, childhood that you think I really want to avoid that isn't necessarily about gender? Because, uh, you know, everybody talks about when they're a new parent, they find themselves doing things that their mum and dad did. And I, as an uncle, I've seen what I'm like with nephews and nieces and um, seen flashes of my mum and dad and you you think about how you were brought up and how you'd do things differently, don't you? Yeah, I mean, I think you know all these things. You're you're all trying to just find your way through. You know, for a little while we did the naughty step to sort of you know <laughs> check her behaviour because I grew up watching Super Nanny, you know, and then. Uh, other friends have said, no, naughty step is not a good thing because when a child is acting out, they're acting out particularly when they're too out of frustration or because they don't really know what they're doing or and therefore to make them feel that, you know, when they feel anger or frustration, they're going to be stuck out in the cold away from you. Obviously, it can be very detrimental to a child, so we don't do that anymore. We try and hold her and cuddle her and, you know, find out why she's banging us in the nose or, you know, occasionally biting or <laughs> any of those things. But we do try and keep it calm and we never shout and we, you know, we we like her to have fun and we like her to be able to play. And I think, you know, at the age of two, do you really want to be disciplining a child? You know, they're, they're tiny little beings just discovering the world. And I think, you know, let's have discipline a little later on. And how about when you were growing up and um, the world around you, how did it respond to your difference? Well, first of all, how was your difference initially expressed? 
Oh, for, for me, it was really tough because I knew from the age of two or three, as soon as I could really speak properly and think really, I knew that I was a boy and I would tell everyone. I don't know why. It was certainly like there was no YouTube. There was no, you know, outward influence. There was no TV with, with trans, trans people weren't anywhere. They no. did They were invisible. And so for me, it was just, you know, just the way I was born, just like you were born. You're gay, aren't you, man? <laughs> just like just like you were born gay, I was born trans, and you know that's all I knew. I knew that I was a boy, and I told everyone who would listen. And I was squashed down over and over and over, and I was put into dresses by my mum. And my dad, I guess, you know, quite liked to have a little tomboy. But you know, when I'd say I'm a boy, they they'd shut that down very quickly because did, they did they understood did they understand what that meant? No, God, no. They, they just thought you were a tomboy. There was no information. You know, there was no internet. There were no charities. There was no. I think short of taking me to a child psychologist there was no way for them to get it because it was just not within their sphere of knowledge or experience and can i just say when you say trans people were invisible i absolutely take that but i do remember the only times i'd hear about trans people and i am a few years older than you it would be um sex swap um sex change vicar born in the wrong body it was these <laughs> real and they'd say transsexual yeah it was yeah. really um like cartoonish yep. understanding yep. of it i mean yes we, you know trans people back then as to some degree we are now were considered sort of freaks and weirdos and the mentally ill and you know it was very easy to sort of make a mockery of the whole thing i mean even now when i watch reruns of, of shows that were sort of very prevalent back in the in the 90s when i was growing up and you know it's constantly joked about from that from Frasier to friends to will and grace you know trans people trans women in particular are the butt of every joke oh, oh, oh you become a woman oh you've tried oh, oh it's just you know that's what I grew up to and you know I obviously the first film I ever saw the first representation I ever saw of a trans man was Boys Don't Cry in 1991 where you know the, the, it's the story of Brandon Tina a young trans man in Nebraska who is raped and murdered and that was all I'd seen and so I was terrified of being me and um, I, know, I only met another trans man when I was 25 years old and that was the first time I'd seen a happy trans person and thought wow, there is actually hope out there. But, you know, I wasted two and a half decades looking for anyone like me. OK, um, there's lots that you've said that I want to pick up on, and I really want to go into the happy representation and experiences of trans men, but we're just going to have a little music break. Matt Kane meets Virgin Radio Pride. You're listening to Virgin Radio Pride. I'm Matt Kane. This is Matt Kane Meets. And today I am meeting the brilliant Jake Graff. So, Jake, we're just talking about when you were growing up, very um, little representation, very few representations of trans men and their experiences. You mentioned Boys Don't Cry, which obviously has a tragic ending and isn't positive at all. Um... So when did you first realise that you could, that it could be possible or you could live out your authentic gender identity? I'm thinking, like, was there any moments before the age of 25, as you were saying earlier, when you thought, I'm not just a tomboy, I can be a boy, this is who I am? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, as, as a young person growing up in a world where these things are sort of talked about, you know, I'd hear 
things on the news or I'd hear things, you know, at school and, you know, trans people were spoken about, as you say, it was never a positive thing. But in my mind, I'd kind of got into my head that there was an operation you could have. I didn't know what the operation really people was. People were obsessed had, with yeah, the, operation, <laughs> the operation, weren't they? This sort of, you know, across the board, transgender operation or transsexual operation, whatever it was. Um, and so I thought there was an operation I could have. But, you know, again, I was growing up in sort of, you know, Margaret Thatcher's England, the, the leftovers of that... Um, my parents didn't really have a clue what was going on. What kind of a background are you from? Did you Where did you grow up and what kind of... So I grew up in a really nice part of London. My dad was in the film industry. You know, it was good times, but it was, you know, I would walk past the, the Champion, which was at the top of my street in Notting Hill Gate, and be told to walk past and not look, you know, and just keep walking as though any of these, you know, very lovely gay men was about to leap out and grab me god knows why because you know they my i don't think my parents had any gay friends and there wasn't that knowledge there wasn't that experience i mean now my mother is my biggest champion and comes to every film festival you know comes to every talk comes to every whatever and you know really champions her transgender son but at the time there was no understanding so i grew up in a in a house where we didn't really talk about gay or lgbt anything um there weren't really any gay friends that i go and see and think oh you know this is a little bit nearer to what i am you know that sort of otherness and i just grew up around a lot of people that didn't really necessarily make me feel accepted and how about um there was greater representation i actually was about to say better representation but i stopped myself there was greater representation of lesbians um i I don't remember it ever being good when i was growing up did you because there were more images of lesbians around did you think initially that you were a butch lesbian sorry not did you think you've already told us you always knew um did you try did you want to be a butch lesbian i mean it's it's more that having spent you know by by the time i sort of found the lesbian community in london at about 16 i'd spent call it 13 years being squashed and told you're not a boy you're not a boy you're not a boy and there comes a point where you have to stop talking about it because it's actually just causing major family problems and issues and you become the naughty child and um so i just learned to squash it down then when puberty hit at about 13 life became almost unbearable and i just became very insular and introverted and and kind of pulled away from everything and everyone and and loathed life and loathed myself and just it was all a very very unhappy time and so you know looking around I, i always knew i was a boy that there wasn't any point where i thought that's not the case but looking around i didn't see me i saw um, films like Desert Hearts or, you know, Beth Jordash in Brookside or any number of, of representations of lesbians where I thought, well, I know I like girls, I've always liked girls, and everyone's telling me I must be, you know, I am a girl, so I must, I guess, I think, maybe just be a butch woman. And so, you know, I went out one night to to Soho and found Freedom Bar and within minutes found a, a, young, <laughs> a young lady who um, showed interest. And I thought, okay, well, I can kind of do this. You know, like the next morning I had a girlfriend... Don't know how that happened. Lasted about two weeks. Um, but uh, it was quite refreshing to walk into a bar and see lots of other people who looked like me. I looked like a butch woman. I had short hair. And um, and feel accepted and feel welcomed and feel embraced for the first time in my life. And so that felt it was quite a heady experience. And I threw myself into that community for the next decade or so. And I, and I lived as very much part of the lesbian communities of London, Brighton, and then New York, until I was about 25, 26 when I met this young guy, Nico, and everything changed. And it's interesting when you talk, you actually mentioned the words loathing yourself. And we in the gay male community talk a lot about 
gay shame. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk to you about trans shame, and uh, you know, it, it's been a presence in a few of your films that I've watched recently. But um, if you are pretending to be a lesbian and you're a trans man, there's quite a lot going on with different layers of shame there, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, my, the, the shame that I, that I talk about during puberty was more the you know, my body felt like it was turning against me and sort of betraying me. I lost my passing privilege, you know, which meant I couldn't walk down the street looking like a little boy with short hair, which I had through most of my childhood. Um, all of a sudden, that was impossible and no no amount of baggy T-shirts was going to disguise that fact. And so that was that sort of first self-loathing, which obviously is, is great at the age of 13 and 14 to be negotiating that, navigating that. And then um, when I came out as a lesbian, it was the first time in my life I'd sort of felt acceptance. But then there was very much, you know, it was I was hanging out and working at the candy bar, surrounded by a sea of men's bars, and it was very much them and us. And unfortunately, I remember, I, I remember going in it. Yeah, it was great. I remember you then, <laughs> and and, and uh, just as handsome as you are today. And uh, there was that that sort of divide, and I remember thinking. But I'm very much not the not the us. I'm the them, unfortunately. And I, you know, was very aware of that. And there were times when I'd have to sort of squash down what I was saying. I mean, a lot of those butch women now have also transitioned. But at the time, none of us were talking about it because it just, you know, there was that feeling of kind of all the girls together. And you know, that's what you sort of did. You fell in line, and and you know, it was it was worth it. And when you know, you've talked about your saying to your parents, "I'm a boy. I'm a boy." When you were little, and then they were so uncomfortable with it, you had to stop saying that. When you came out as a lesbian, how did they react? Were they relieved because you weren't a trans man? Or um, were they... God, no. I mean, the, a trans man meant they just nothing even, to them. Yeah, they wouldn't yeah. even have known what a trans man was if they'd been knocked over the head with it. My my da- my father had sadly passed away when I was 18, leaving all sorts of unmended relations and awful you know, regrets to this day. Um, that we just had never managed to make peace after a very difficult kind of, you know, teen years. Um, and my mum actually said, which is sort of been the way that my mum's reacted the whole way, so long as you're happy. You know, she she saw me with a girlfriend and it all kind of came out like that. And she said, well, look, as long as you are happy. And, you know, was as supportive as possible. But I really went off the rails in my 20s and I was drinking too much and doing, you know, it's just, for me, it had been by then nearly two decades of pain and you know, like like I said, that the word sort of self-disgust, self-loathing, low self-esteem, low self-confidence, knowing that I wasn't living a life because I was so desperately unhappy all the time. And uh, I was in a very dark place. And it, obviously, as we all know, when you are so filled with self-hatred, it's very hard to love or be kind to other people. And, Tough you know, I was, uh, I, was, I was pretty bad. I was, I was a very unhappy, very angry person for the duration of my 20s, pretty much, until I was able to to sort of you know meet this young guy and and he talked me through the whole thing and hormones and chest surgery and counseling and all of that and uh, very very fortunately my mother was able to help me go privately because as we know the waiting lists on the NHS are two three four years long and um, when I began that process I genuinely almost changed overnight because for the first time in my life I felt hope I felt happy I knew that one day very soon I would walk down the street and be able to stand tall and proud and look in a mirror and see myself which is something I I hadn't felt since I was a a young boy you know and was there any equivalent you know you talk about um going into lesbian bars was there any equivalent when you I'm sure meeting Nico as an individual was a 
hugely heady experience, but was there an equivalent when you met your tribe amongst trans... I mean, I know there's no trans men bars, but... Um, <laughs> There'd be about you... three of us in there. <laughs> We're really rocking. But, you know, when did you feel a sense of community with other trans men or... Have you not felt that yet? I mean, I have to say, when I was when I was living in New York for that year, there was really a. I mean, again, we are quite a small minority, but there would be trans men out within that community. A lot of whom had lived as part of that community. Um, a lot of whom had sort of joined that community. You know, the New York queer community was a lot more diverse than it is here. A lot less segregated than it is here. And you know, there were bars where you would see all walks of queer life. And there I met a lot of other trans men, mostly through Nico, and, and actually felt like, well, I mean, one young guy wanted to be a monk. And it was amazing. You know, he was training to go off and be a monk. And uh, he just transitioned. And I was I thought, wow, what, a, what an amazing guy that not only have you navigated transition, but now you're actually off on this spiritual sort of, you know, odyssey. And, and I, I realized that there was a lot more to being a trans guy than just, you know, let's get through the transition. There was... There was hope and there was a future. You said that with a big smile on your face, the spiritual odyssey. I'm glad we're now into the positive <laughs> territory. We're going to have a quick music break, then we'll be right back. Matt Kane meets Virgin Radio Pride. This is Matt Kane meets on Virgin Radio Pride, and today I am meeting Jake Graff. Jake, welcome back. We've talked a lot about your personal life, growing up, and then as a young trans man. I'd love now to talk about your work, and um, I'd like to start by talking about your work as an actor. Um, I wonder whether living in the wrong gender for years and having to pretend to be someone else and play a role actually made you a better actor or maybe just switched you on to it. I had always wanted to act since I was very young. I've always, you know, I immersed myself in film as a means of escapism when I was younger. Um, and I would, you know, I'd read for hours and then I'd watch films like Indiana Jones and all the Star Wars films and wanted to be Luke Skywalker and wanted to be Indiana Jones. And, and I'd always some sort of part of me, all these dreams that I used to have of one day becoming a parent, one day getting married, one day being an actor, all these things that I thought are never going to happen to me. Um, and there was that. And it, I would never have been able to do it because my, my, I had zero self-belief or self-confidence or self-worth until transition. But those feelings are not ones, as we all know, that go away as soon as life gets a bit better. Mm. They're, they're in your bones, absolutely. they're in your soul, yeah. aren't they? And it's really difficult. Yeah. It's a long process. You have setbacks. and Oh, yeah. And, and I, but I, I think, actually, it almost affects me the other way around because I was so uncomfortable in my body and uncomfortable in myself and, you know, sort of just watching my actions the whole time and so sort of withdrawn and so held in, I actually think it's been harder for me to kind of release those. I, for, through all my drama school, they'd say, you know, just let it go, just let it go. And I'd be like, I can't let it go. It's all I've ever known is watching and guarding and holding it all in. And it's, you know, to, to try and act. And it's taken me a long while just to find quiet and just to be able to find stillness and just to be able to genuinely start to relax into my body which is what you have to do as an actor and i have never felt relaxed in my body so you know it's actually almost i think being, being, a hindrance. Being, yeah being a hindrance that's really interesting um i've had lots of friends who've been actors over the years and the few gay male actors were the same they were so self-conscious about the way they spoke and um covering things up they couldn't relax and um that very much matches the way you've explained it, actually. Mm. Even more, I mean, auditions are 
I mean, I'm quite glad we've gone to, to self-tapes now through, through after COVID, but auditions to stand in front of people and have them look at me and judge me and, you know, read me is my worst nightmare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, having had that all my life, you know, do they know I'm trans and what are they looking at and do they think my hands are too small? Do they? And that filling your head when you're trying to go in and give a good performance and do a good read makes it almost impossible. I've really struggled with auditions, I have to say. Well, and also whether you can pass as a cis man is such a triggering subject, isn't it? And in some cases, that's exactly what you're doing in an audition. Yep. What, how do you, where do you stand on the debate about um, trans actors only playing trans roles and cis actors only playing cis roles? I think we've got to a time now where we need to give trans actors uh, an opportunity and I think right now everyone who's, who's writing a, cis, uh, a trans role should be casting trans actors and I think there is no way around that. I, I know that for many years, I you know, and I've said this previously, I felt that um, I think we needed to see our stories told. For instance, with the Danish girl, you know, I think Eddie yeah. Redmayne did a lovely job. Eddie Redmayne is a friend of mine. I think he's a, he's a great actor. He brought visibility to a story that previously, and this was, what, seven or eight years ago, you know, we hadn't really seen any sympathetic, kind representations of trans people. And the film may not have been made if it didn't have a star attached exactly to right. give and it um, not clout with, to yep, the box office. Exactly right. And it is a business, you know, it is the film industry, which is a business, and that film would not have been made without Eddie and Tom Hooper. And I love it, and my mum loves it, and I know a lot of her older friends who would never watch a trans film or a trans storyline love that film because Eddie played that role. But that was, as we said, seven or eight years ago. I think nowadays there are enough, well, there are certainly enough emerging trans actors, maybe not to get the box office clout, maybe not to get people into the cinema, but certainly to start getting opportunities alongside bigger names so that we can all start, you know, having that profile to, to pull in those budgets. And one of my favourite roles of yours is in the short film Brace, in which you play a character, we without giving too much away, we <laughs> initially think is cis. So you have to be convincing a cis for most of the film. I just wondered, in, in the light of what you've just told me, how that was for you. I mean, you see, all of this is a bit like, it's th this kind of, you know, trans people having to be con convincing as cis and trans people having to pass as cis and all that. That's just nonsense. You know, we are who we are. I don't have to pass as anything. You know, my wife doesn't have to pass as anything. We, you know, I feel how I feel. I like to work out so I've got, you know, I'm slightly muscular and athletic. I like to have a beard because I think it makes my face look better. You know, all of these are not me trying to pass as a cis man. They're just how I feel comfortable. I think, you know, you're a cis man, but you don't think, oh, am I passing as a cis man today? Because, you know, you're just being you, lovely Matt Cain. <laughs> and I'm just being me. And whether that is passing or not, I think, you know, f from my point of view, I wrote Brace because I wanted to look at you know, this whole sort of idea of trans people having to disclose and reveal themselves and when do we have to reveal ourselves and should we ever have to reveal ourselves if we're not dating someone, you know, is that our right to keep our identities to ourselves because of the hate out there and the judgment out there? Um, and so that's what Brace was all about. And obviously, you know, added in a, a, a good dose of internalised transphobia. And uh, Well, <laughs> totally. Go. I was going to ask you about that. Was You know, in the light of what you've just said about that, how, how difficult were those scenes to act? I mean, I mean, I have to say, I absolutely love doing Brace. Harry Rundle, who plays opposite me, who is a fabulous young actor, who is a cis guy. And, you know, this is also quite telling because this was my film and I exec produced and I produced and I wrote it. And um, at the time, we tried desperately to find another actor to play opposite me, another trans male actor. 
and Brace was, I think, 2012 or 13, and we couldn't find anyone anywhere. And I have had people come up to me when we went off to Frameline and screened in San Francisco, and someone came up to me and said, you know what, that film was great, and the other guy was great, but you are cisgender, and you should not have played that part. And the irony, I thought, well, that's great, but thank you for making your assumptions and, <laughs> and having a go at me outside my film premiere. But, uh, you know, I, th I think I would never now... It's difficult because sometimes, you know, at the moment I'm, I'm trying to cast for, for my next film and I'm really trying to find a great trans female lead. And, you know, we've had some great people and hopefully one of them will, will end up being the right person. But, you know, do you not tell a story unless you can find that great actor? Well, obviously, you know, if it's a cis role, you've got any number of actors to choose from, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, all waiting for the job. But with the trans community, it's a lot harder. So do you not tell a trans story when we so desperately need those stories unless you can find the right actor? Or do you go ahead and do, do you shoot it with a cis with a cis actor, which is what has happened so many times over the over the course of history and, and very recently? But hopefully there will come a time when that isn't a dilemma because trans actors will have had more opportunities and there'll be lots of good ones around. Absolutely. I mean, that's what we need. What we need, and I keep having this conversation with people, and I was off in L.A. recently, met loads of wonderful people like Lily Wachowski, etc. And uh, what we need is people at the very top. So those powerful people like Lily in Hollywood who are obviously helming these projects, they're in the writer's room, they're making sure that the, the trans characters are written in, that they're well written in, that they are then cast as trans people, and then these trans people will get high-profile roles, which means that their CVs look great, which means that they are then in demand for the next role. And that's what we need to do. We need to see it from the top down, and that also goes with gay characters, lesbian characters, non-binary characters, all of those representations that we you know are so rare on screen. We just need those to be written in well from the top and the industry will change well and actually talking about writing obviously you're also an accomplished writer director and when you're talking about trans stories a few of your films i watched recently and loved dawn and dusk in particular it's interesting how you use trans identities to confound expectations to um you know things not being as they seem and to a certain extent, they're a gift for storytelling, actually, trans characters, because you can disrupt expectations. You know, um, is that something you've enjoyed working with? Yeah, I mean, there are so many, there are endless trans stories that you could tell um, because we are, you know, it's such an interesting life. I mean, I, you know, from my, from my own personal perspective, I've lived as, you know, I've lived as a, as, a, as a young girl and seen how young girls are treated in society, which, you know, I can only assume is very different to how young boys are treated from what I hear. And I've lived as a lesbian and then I've lived as a trans man and then I've had a boyfriend and seen how, you know, how it is to walk through the street holding your boyfriend's hand and perceived as two men and live that life and, you know, have people whisper and talk about you on the tube and, you know, call you faggot as you get off the tube and all of these wonderful things. You know, I've been very, very lucky and I now consider myself kind of pansexual so you know i've lived a little bit of all of the lgbtq um and it's just just endless stories that we can write and tell and if you look at great storylines that we've seen you know like pose where we oh, have I seen love it. which is just wonderful and you know trans women have always had that visibility because of their physicality because of their voice because of the fact that they've had to fight for their place in the world in a way that trans men haven't so much because we can just go over under the radar and sort of live a kind of more stealth quieter lifestyle but it does mean that historically we are almost invisible so you know the, the trans these trans women have this fascinating wonderful vibrant 
history and and visibility and presence in the last you know few decades whereas trans men really have none so i'm really doing my very very best to kind of you know show that we have been everywhere we have all been everywhere since the dawn of time i know you are doing your very best and we're going to talk about it more but we're just going to have this quick break matt kane meets virgin radio pride this is Matt Kane meets on Virgin Radio Pride, and today I am meeting the fantastic Jake Graff. Jake, just before that break, we were talking about um, trans experiences and how they can be great for storytelling. And it struck me when you were talking about it that there's there's so much that's positive that hasn't yet been explored. And actually, you know, you were saying you use the word lucky to talk about your life because you've had all these insights. And I was thinking, actually, you know, from to most trans lives, self-actualization is right at the forefront in a way that straight cis people probably just never get to experience. And all right, there may be lots of negative emotions you have to get through but you know you're you get to experience so many emotions so many very extreme intense emotions that a lot of people have close to them and you're nodding i don't actually know what my question is <laughs> I'm than, isn't hooks. it brilliant isn't it brilliant it in is. lots I, of ways I, yeah i mean f- from my point of view i think you know we fight so hard to be ourselves and Yes, I think, you know, the, the, the resilience of trans people, particularly in the current face of adversity and the the hate that we see and the bigotry that we see and the sort of, you know, a lot of it is just unbridled hate and I don't really get it. And yes, of course, I think it's wonderful that we all get to this or when we get to this place, but we know that it's a tough life. It is a really tough life. And if I had to choose to go back and be born as a normal little boy, I, I use the word normal with quotation marks, yep. but, you know, as, as just a little boy, that's probably the life I would have chosen because oh, really? it was really hard. It has been really mm-hmm. hard. And what happens on a daily basis now is really worrying. What I see out there, you know, the attacks on my wife and other trans women like her. I know a friend very recently who was spat out on the London Tube. You know, we're seeing trans women being murdered across the world on a pretty much daily basis. I don't want to go down a, down a sort of depressing route, but unfortunately we are currently in a space where our own government is not supportive of trans people. The laws going across the US um, hurting trans kids and trans adults and legislations and so on are absolutely terrifying and it does feel like we're going back to a worrying place and back to the right and I would hope that we are at some point soon going to come to a time where we all realise as the beautiful LGBTQIA community that we are that we really do all need to support each other and that we need to stop attacking each other because those people that are attacking the trans community now are just going for the weakest link the weakest and smallest link but when they're done with us, they will come for the rest of you. They will come for the, the you know, gay marriage. They will come for lesbian marriage. They will come for gay and lesbian people being able to adopt and foster children. And it will just carry on from there. And, you know, I, I, I really can just say, please rise up and summon that that empathy that you needed when you were a child or a young person feeling different and feeling othered and please try and apply it to to your trans siblings so right so you've mentioned empathy this is interesting because um if you think about trans people and activism now and and actually i really wanted to talk to you about activism now so much of it is just about visibility mm-hmm. um it's different to my experience as a gay man we've we've Cross that barrier quite a while ago in terms of being visible and 
everybody knowing a gay person and therefore being able to empathise because they've learnt that we're just like them. As a trans man and as part as half of a very high-profile trans couple, a lot of the activism you do is bare bones being visible and being visible to as many people as possible, isn't it? Is, is, did you and Hannah have to make a decision in the early days of your relationship that you were going to open it up for the benefits of the cause? I mean, I don't know whether it was a decision like, like as, as such, you know, um, I know that when I was growing up, I had no visible role models, no role models whatsoever, nor did my wife, nor did a lot of trans people um, past the age of, I think, probably 18, have any visible role models at all. And uh, from my point of view, you know, obviously I was going into acting and filmmaking, so there was already a certain visibility. You know, it wasn't like the, the quiet life is sort of working, you know, down at your local hospital or post office or whatever. You know, I'd chosen a... a, a you know, an artistic life which has visibility by definition. My wife, who was the highest ranking mm -hmm. transgender officer in the British Army, came out quietly in the army, was supported, worked for about six months, happily living as, as the woman she'd always been, until someone decided to leak it to the newspapers and she was splashed across the front page. So her platform and her voice was thrust upon her. Mine was sort of chosen, but ended up being a lot bigger platform because I was the only trans man that was really sort of out and being visible. At a, you know, about five, six years ago, I guess. Is she as comfortable with it, then, if it was thrust upon her, Hannah, as you are? She is now. And, you know, again, it's it's that she was, you know, she lived in the army. She's used to speaking publicly. So she had already started, when she was outed, she popped onto the Lorraine show. Lorraine Kelly's been become a big, big friend of ours and a big oh, she's kind of fantastic. advocate. She, she is. Love Lorraine. And, you know, she really defends the trans community and it's very touching. And, um, you know, Hannah found support that way and found that her voice was helping other particularly within the military other soldiers who were trans or non-binary or lgbt to find their voice you know she worked for five years as the army's transgender representative and changed policy um made sure that non-binary people were, rep were recognized for the first time within military policy so you know she did huge things for her country and for, for the wider lgbt population in fact getting an mb for it um two years ago which is amazing you're smiling and, with pride as you uh, say she, that. she's amazing but we, between the two of us, you know, when we popped a photo of us as a couple on Instagram, we got so much love. This was back at the beginning of our relationship seven years ago, six years ago. So much love and so many people saying, you have given me hope that I can find love. It's so hard dating as a trans person. You've made me feel that maybe one day. And then, of course, we got a lot of parents saying, you know, following our relationship and following our family. And, and you saying, did the Channel 4 documentary. Yeah, and then, I mean, that Channel 4 doc... Got, we had thousands of messages over about a week from parents of trans kids saying you've given us hope that our children can find work, can find love, can get married, can have kids. All those things that we thought we were signing off when our child came out as trans or indeed anyone on the LGBTQI spectrum. A lot of people were messaging just saying you've given us hope for our kids that it's all, it's all going to be okay, um, which meant the world to us. And because of that... It feels important and it feels like, you know, a legacy that we can lead that leave that maybe more trans people will, will, will feel hope and will feel that, you know, one day they'll be happy like we are. Oh, you're bringing me right round to the last question, which I just wanted to say. Do you feel hopeful about the future? You're about to bring a new person into the world. Do you think, and I mean, we've talked about the massive problems in the world at the moment, or, you know, the ones that affect our community. Do you think it's going to be a better world for your children? 
I think if you believe all the sort of polls and so on that with the the fact that you know young people now I think 50% of 16 to 24s are identifying as somewhere along the LGBTQIA spectrum that really has hope for the future because they will obviously have friends and families who will be accepting and loving of their children or their friends or their brother or their sister and that is is a huge not trickle down trickle up effect some kind of trickle effect anyway where hopefully that love and that acceptance not tolerance because we don't need to be tolerated we need to be accepted i agree hopefully that spreads and we see much more love we see much more kindness and the old bigots and dinosaurs die out not to wish death upon anyone but i think you know if you don't have love in your heart and if you don't want to accept the person next to you just for being themselves then i don't think there's place for you in this world so hopefully that love will keep on spreading and we will come to a point where we can all just embrace and love and feel proud of who we are. Brilliant last words. Jet Graf, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. The Virgin Radio Pridecast, proudly supported by Disney Plus. Full of stories and love for all.